can be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Uh, for those of you who weren't here at the beginning, just want you to know that uh, the Scoggin family missed you all as we were off for the last couple of weeks, and we we're so glad to be back. There's just, uh, there's just nothing like preaching to your own church, and uh, I did get the privilege of preaching in, in one church in Texas and loved it. I mean, I love preaching God's Word anywhere that I go, but the opportunity to preach to your own church each week, uh, there's just a particular joy. And so we missed you, and we are glad to be back with you, and back in the book of Colossians for that matter. We're going to be looking at Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23 this morning. Colossians 2, 16 to 23. And if you're looking for a sermon title, it's simply False Trusts. False Trusts. We're going to start by just uh, reading. I'm going to read aloud for us from verse 16 all the way to 23. Then we're going to pray and jump right in this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we need your word. I need your word, Lord, this morning. All of your people who are gathered here today need your word. Lord, we need you to remind us of who you are. We need you to remind us of what you've done for us again. We need to be reminded of your mighty works that you've accomplished in Christ. We need to be reminded of who we are in him. We need to be reminded of all the ways that we could be tempted to drift away from the truth of the gospel. Lord, we need your word this morning. Oh God, we are surrounded, surrounded by a world that is filled with people that are placing their hope in false things, false beliefs, false systems. And Lord, this is not something that is, it seems, getting any better in our day, but worse. And so God, we as your people need to be bolstered in the truth of your word. So would you do that for us this morning by your spirit? 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We may not like to admit it, but we are all creatures who are all too easily duped into believing things that are not true. Perhaps you've heard the famous quote that's often attributed to uh, Joseph, I don't know if it's Gobbles, but Goebbels or however, you guys know who I'm talking about, the famous minister of propaganda for the Nazi German government of the Third Reich. Well, he once asserted, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, People will eventually come to believe it. And boy, did he ever prove that to be true in the things that we saw Nazi Germany do in the mid-20th century. Social scientists have gone on to study this sort of thing, and they have labeled it the illusory truth effect. And basically what that means is that we are people who are prone to believe things, even if they are not true, if we hear them enough times. And so we need to remember that just because something is said, and just because something is said again and again and over and over, and perhaps even that thing is believed by lots of people, that does not make it true. And it doesn't matter how convincing or how dynamic the person is who is telling these various lies. It doesn't matter if they can persuade you with all sorts of crafty and good-sounding arguments. That doesn't make whatever they are saying true. We need help by God through his word to be able to discern the difference between what is true and what is false. And what we have to realize this morning, friends, is that the Christian gospel, which is preached through people like the Apostle Paul and written down for us in God's unchanging word, the Christian gospel is a claim of that which is absolutely true. It's a claim of the difference between what is true and what should be considered a lie. And standing right at the very center of all that Christianity holds to be true is a single person who claimed to embody truth in himself. And that, you know, is the person, Jesus Christ. Friends, the entire Bible, you could say, is an appeal to all humanity to believe in what is true in the face of a billion lies that are told within the world. And that certainly has been the Apostle Paul's purpose thus far in Colossians. Paul wants the Colossians to hold fast to Christ as the supreme and sufficient Lord and Savior. Remember, all that we are going to see in our text this morning is built upon what Paul told the church in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Look at it there in your Bibles. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Paul said, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, you received this person who is the full embodiment of all that is known to be true, of all that you ought to hope in and believe in and cast all of your life upon. All of that is in the person that you received, Jesus Christ the Lord. So walk in him. What does it mean to be walking in him? Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul wants these Christians to remember, you received Christ. You need to walk in him. To be walking in him is to be rooted and built up in him, is to be firmly established in the faith that you were taught about him, which is going to cause you as a person trusting in him to abound in thanksgiving in your life. 
Now remember, the Christ that we received, Paul makes clear in chapter 1 of Colossians, is not just another God amidst a bunch of other gods who he tends to have a liking for. No, Jesus Christ is clearly presented in Colossians as the monotheistic God of the Jews. Friends, don't forget, the Jews believed there were how many gods? One God. Only one God. Paul was a faithful Jew. He believes that Jesus is this one and only true God. And of course, as we study the various aspects of the revelation that we have received in the New Testament, we come to see very clearly that Jesus is presented as what we now theologically would call the second person of the Trinity. But we're not just making this stuff up and coming up with fancy words to try to dupe people into believing something that's not in the text. No, Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. There is one God in three persons, thus our Trinitarian God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Paul has made that so abundantly clear in chapter one of Colossians. He has shown us that Jesus is this one true God who is timeless, who exists before anything exists. And he is the one, in fact, who has created all things that have been made. He is God. He is Lord, and he ought to be worshipped as such. That's the Jesus that we're talking about here. Paul doesn't want us to just get the idea that Jesus, though, is just some great distant deity that we can kind of know a little bit. No, no, no. He wants us to realize how incredible it is that the God of all took on human flesh and came into this world into the broken condition of this world, into a world that is in rebellion against the creator God, uh, into a world that is messed up because of our human sin, God steps down into that world to rescue us. He doesn't just come to destroy us. He comes to save all who will receive him as Lord. Okay, remember Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Paul reminds the Colossians, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, Jesus came to restore us to right relationship with our creator, God. So Paul writes to those who have received the true Christ as the only hope of salvation. But as we've already seen, the domain of darkness doesn't want people trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation. And so as a result, we as God's people should expect that we will be told an unimaginable number of lies by the enemies of God to try to draw us away from the truth of the gospel. That truth that Jesus is Lord and he is Savior and he is all that we need. So God gives us our text today through his apostle Paul to warn us, friends, against trusting what is false. And the false trust, which we're going to be tempted to run to, will often come in one or all of these three different forms, which are the three main points that we're going to see today as we work through this text. First, trusting false judgment. Second, trusting false experience. And third, trusting false idols. 
Okay, that's the things that Paul wants to make sure Christians don't place their trust in. Don't trust false judgment. Don't trust false experience and don't trust false idols. So let's jump in and look at this together. First, trusting false judgment. Look with me at Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17. The apostle Paul writes, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We've been alluding to various aspects of the false teaching that the Apostle Paul is confronting as we've been working through the book of Colossians. And in our text today, we really get what is the fullest details of just what these false teachers are demanding of the church here. See, Paul is deeply concerned about the influence of these so-called Christian teachers. Okay, th these are people who are disguising themselves as Christians, saying that they have found some greater truth that this church needs to embrace in addition to the gospel that they had received. They're preaching, though, Paul wants his church to see something else that is entirely different. And the, the, what they're doing as they preach this false truth is they're putting an immense amount of pressure Really, they're putting the Christians in this church in a sort of pressure cooker to embrace their way of thinking. And that pressure is coming in the form of extreme judgmentalism. Okay, the, these false teachers are the kind of people that we would call in our world just a little bit judgy. All right, they're, they're just a little bit judgy. They're, just, they're, they're always making judgments on people, trying to make you feel bad about yourself, trying to posture themselves as being a little bit better than you. And their judgment is what we would call in our Christian terms, classic legalism. They, these are legalists, okay? Now, legalism is a difficult thing to define, but if we look at our text, I think we're going to start to see just a little bit of what it is. In particular, these false teachers are passing judgment on matters regarding food and drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath, okay? Now, if you know your Old Testament, then you ought to be recognizing some of these different terms because all of the terms that are given here are related to the Jewish purification rites that were given to the Jews for a very particular purpose. Okay, one scholar, G.K. Beale, helpfully notes this. Listen to this. He says, the primary purpose of these laws, the ones that are listed here in the Old Testament, is to enable the Israelites to become clean and be able to enter into God's temple to worship him. Do you hear that? All these different rites, food, drink, Sabbath, holidays, festivals, seasons, all these things are a standard of expectations that were given to the Jews by which they could cleanse themselves, is the idea, in order to enter into God's temple and worship him within his holy presence. So remember, the God of the Jews, the one true God, is a holy and pure and perfect and righteous altogether God. And thus his presence can only be known and enjoyed by a people who are clean and by a people who are in a place that has been cleansed. So in the Old Testament, Jews were to worship God at the temple as a holy 
people. That's what the tabernacle and the temple were for. This is the one place on earth where God's presence is going to dwell because we're going to keep this place holy. And when we come here, we're going to do all these rites and rituals to make sure that we're pure so that we can enter into his presence. So, so the food and drink refers to the laws that God graciously gave his people to signify, these are my holy ones. These are the ones of all the people in the world who are able to enter into my presence because they're living according to my law. They're being righteous is the idea. They're being holy. They can come into my presence. The, the same doesn't just go for the food and drink, but also for new moon observances. And even the Sabbath day that we see here, all of these were practices that identified Israel as God's holy people in comparison and contrast to those who were not the holy people, those who worshiped the pagan gods. The idea is these Jews don't live the way that the pagans lived. Okay, they were separate and called out people for the purposes of Yahweh. And they came and worshipped their God in a pure temple as a pure people. At least, listen, at least that's what was called for. But as we know, Israel as a people failed in this task. They did not keep the temple clean. They defiled the temple. They violated the temple. They did not keep themselves clean. They sinned against God. They rebelled against him. They syncretized their religion. They began to worship the false gods and allow them to dwell within the land that was supposed to be holy. So all of these Old Testament rules and regulations really just expose the failure of sinful man to keep ourselves pure before a holy God. And so the point, friends, this is the point we can't be clean enough. We can't be clean enough to enter into God's holy temple. Did you hear that? That's the whole point of all that's going on in the Old Testament is to expose the sin of man. We can't keep God's temple holy. We can't keep it pure. We can't keep it clean. And we certainly can't enter into it when his presence is there because we're not holy ourselves. We're defiled. We're unclean. And yet what the false teachers are saying is you can clean yourself up. And you better clean yourself up in order to enter into God's holy tabernacling presence. They're coming into these churches and they're telling these new Christians, if you really want to know the full presence of God, if you want to know the fullness that your heart so deeply longs for, you can't just trust in Jesus. You need to clean yourself by obedience to the law. That is necessary. It's required. There's no presence of God for you unless you're getting pretty darn near close to perfect. So keep the laws required. That's the false judgment that's happening here. And it's a deadly form of legalism. It's a teaching that says, straightforwardly, entering the fullness of God's joyful presence is dependent upon our performance to a particular set of rules. That's the deadly sin of legalism, friends. So basically, these false teachers are saying, if you want to be temple worthy, literally, they have the temple on their mind. If you want to be temple worthy... If you want to be allowed to enter into God's special presence on the last day, and even somewhat now, then you need to do X, Y, and Z. And you need to keep doing these things in order to be considered 
temple worthy. Otherwise, you don't get into the presence of God. Which means that ultimately, friends, you have to trust your own performance if you're ever going to have a shot at getting into the perfect tabernacling presence of God, which is the only place where we know that we can ever know the fullness that our hearts desperately long for. So Paul sees this as a wicked and demonic way of thinking and believing. And the reason is because Jesus came to fulfill all that these Old Testament practices signified. Okay, look how clear this is in verse 17. Paul says, these things, all these practices are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, the, the Old Testament purification rituals were a shadow of that which the people of God were actually to cling to as their ultimate hope, which is Christ. So, so Paul's point is that this mystery that was a shadow in the Old Testament has now been revealed. Okay, in the Old Testament, God's people could only see a shadow of God's plan for deliverance. It wasn't fully revealed yet. But now we see the substance of our faith with our own eyes. We see the true body of our faith. We see Christ himself, who was and who is the perfectly pure temple and dwelling place of God, who came to live a pure life, to offer his life as a perfect sacrifice in the heavenly temple, so that all who trust in him through faith alone are included into his perfect purity and can enter into God's presence forever, not by our works, not by our obedience, but by the fact that we have been included into him through faith. So you can go into the fullness of God, not on the basis of any performance that you ever did or could do, but only on the basis of the performance that Christ has already done for you if you are believing and trusting in him. And Paul's point is that to look back on the Old Testament rituals or, or on any act of personal human obedience as our hope for salvation is to be like a person who grasps at empty shadows. Think of Plato's famous cave analogy, right? In his analogy, he depicts most of the world as being like a man that is living in a darkened cave. And he's chained in that cave where he's not able to escape. And in that cave, the man can see shadows on a wall. And to him, those shadows become the only reality that he knows. He, he has no concept in his mind because he's always been in that cave. He's always known only the things that he's seen there. He has no concept that those shadows could actually be substantial people or objects up above because he's only ever known the shadow. Until one day he escapes the cave and he comes to understand the world, the world in its true light. He sees that all of the shadows that he saw were not the real substance and now he beholds with his eyes the beauty of the substance. He sees the substance. Why would he ever want to go back to the cave and deal with the shadows? Now he sees the beauty of the world in full color. That's Paul's point here. Christ is who we hold on to, not the shadows. Which means that the call of every Christian is to reject any system of religion that tells us you need to depend upon your own works or obedience for salvation. 
We need this reminder, friends, because legalism is sneaky and our hearts are finicky. Legalism at its heart really is a belief that God has not been as generous or as kind to us as he really has been. Do you know that the legalist, the person who thinks that everything's dependent upon them and their own works, the legalist makes a stingy God in his own mind. The legalistic heart questions at the deepest possible level the goodness of God. Have you ever considered that legalism is really what led Eve to eat of the fruit in the Garden of Eden? Think of it. In the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve an abundance of perfect fruit. I mean, they had a whole garden just full of this stuff, and it was an all-you-can-eat menu. They could have whatever they wanted anywhere in the garden except that God had commanded them not to eat of one particular tree. So, So what were they supposed to do in the garden? They were supposed to look around and be blown away at how generous God had been to them. Their hearts were supposed to be filled with thanksgiving. God, how could you give us this much? How could you be this kind to us, this gracious to us, this generous to us? We are just creatures. You're God, but look at how you have abundantly blessed us with more than we could ever even enjoy if we tried to. They they were supposed to be filled with that sort of thanksgiving as they received the gift of God in creation. But instead, what did they do? Instead, they set their eyes on the one tree the one tree that they were not supposed to eat of. And they determined that God must not be as good as he first seemed to be. They decided that they needed instead to depend upon themselves and their own judgment to know fullness. And so they took of the fruit and ate. Don't you see how their their indulgence was rooted in a wrong and legalistic understanding of God. They rebelled against him because they assumed that their action was required to go beyond what God has provided because he was withholding something from them. That They crafted a false and a stingy God in their own minds rather than trusting the one true God who loved them and made them and provided everything that their souls could ever possibly need. My friend, if you see God as stingy, then know that you're going to do the same thing. You will make up laws and and autonomous human performance standards by which you come to judge yourself and others as righteous or not. And, And you'll be susceptible to being duped by the person who comes along and tells you that he has found a truer or a fuller version of the faith that you should follow. You're going to begin believing that trusting in Jesus alone just isn't enough. You need to also trust in your own obedience. You need to have three hours of prayer every morning. You need to raise your children in this exact particular manner. You need to not eat this and not drink that or do eat this or do drink that. You will set all sorts of rules and regulations and standards that in your own mind make you a superior sort of a Christian so that you're no longer depending on God and what he has provided in Christ, but now you're depending on God plus all the things that you want to add to it. That's legalism. The gospel tells you that Christ is all that you need. 
That's the significance of the word therefore there at the beginning of verse 16. Remember what comes right before the therefore, friends? Colossians 2, 13 and 14, or 13 to 15. And you, Paul says, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see what Paul's saying here, church? In Christ, you have been freed from gaining your own salvation by adherence to the legal demands of the law because all of your sin, all of your failure, all of your lack of ability to measure up to the standard of God has been nailed to the cross of Christ. So you have been forgiven of your sins, all of it, so that now the call for you is to depend and trust on Jesus and his work alone. There's nothing more that you can do nor must do in order to be reconciled to God. Jesus did it all, all of it. So you get to enter into his holy presence the moment that you believe in Jesus through faith. The moment that you say, oh, I understand. Jesus accomplished all of my salvation. Not part of it. Not like he did some and I need to do the rest. He did all of it. The moment that you believe that, place your trust in him, you enter into the presence of God in a spiritual sense now, and one day are guaranteed to enter into his presence in a spiritual and physical sense during the resurrect, after the resurrection of the dead. That's the hope of the Christian. Jesus guarantees my complete salvation. It's in him and in him alone. And so you got to see the Christian life should not be lived in regretful, fearful obedience. But instead, the Christian life should be lived in just a joyful, even lighthearted, pleasurable obedience to God, knowing that Jesus has already done everything that was necessary for my eternal life and salvation. I'm going to be in the presence of God, so I can just joyfully obey him. I can't follow him. I can do what he says, but it's not a begrudging. I'm trying to earn his presence. It's I have received his presence in Christ, and now I just want to follow after him with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength because I love him knowing what he has done for me in Jesus. That's the difference between the true truth and the false sort of judgmentalism. Do you see what the false teachers want you to believe? They want you to believe that you're still under God's judgment and you need to perform to get yourself out from that. And that's why Paul tells them in verse 16, let no one pass that kind of judgment on you. You're forgiven. You're free. Jesus did it all. But trusting false judgment and this sort of legalism isn't the only form of false trust that's warned against here. Secondly, Paul warns against trusting false experience. Trusting false experience. Look at Colossians 2, verses 18 and 19. Paul writes, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up 
without reason, by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. When Paul writes, let no one disqualify you, the word there is the same kind of root form as the command above, to not let someone pass false judgment, but the difference within the word and the Greek actually carries a connotation now of being robbed of a prize. So, so to be disqualified by another person is basically to be hoodwinked out of that which was rightly yours. Okay, so, so think of the story of Jacob and Esau. This is just a good illustration of what's going on here. You know Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament? Jacob was a crafty guy, a deceptive guy even. So was his mother. So he schemes with his mother of how he can rob Esau, the brother, of his birthright. The birthright was rightfully Esau's, at least within the Jewish tradition. So Esau, being the older son, should have had that right. But one day, Esau comes back from the field and he is just starving to death. He's famished. He thinks that he's going to die right there on the spot if he can't just get a bowl of soup right away. So Jacob has made this delicious, great-smelling bowl of soup. And Jacob, being the smart, crafty, deceptive sort of one, convinces his brother, I'll give you the bowl of soup, but you got to give me your birthright. you got to give it to me. And so Esau legally gives up his birthright. And just like that, in a moment of desperation, Esau gave up an immense blessing. Paul's telling the Colossians to not let these false teachers trick them like that. They had gained Christ. They had gained fullness in him. They had gained full blessing in him. Don't let anyone rob that from you by adding more standards and regulations. But not just standards and regulations by way of legalism. The other way that these false teachers are trying to rob them of all that they have received in Christ is these false teachers are giving off an air of spiritual superiority by boasting in their religious experiences. Okay, Paul says that these teachers insist on asceticism and the worship of angels. The asceticism that Paul refers to here is a harshness to the body. More than likely, what's going on here is really extreme fasting. They're saying you need to fast and not eat for days on end, more than likely, and that's going to enable you to have some sort of visitation from an angel. Okay, well, what's going on here is really a folk religion that was common in various Judaistic sects that said you need to have angelic visitations. And the way you get those angelic visitations is by fasting and doing harshness to your body. So, so here's what the teachers are saying. The truly spiritual people are people who receive visions and revelations from angels. Those are the really spiritual people. That's like the higher form of Christianity. That's living on a sort of higher plane from the rest of the Christians who are down here. Are you having visions and revelations? Well, how do you get the visions and revelations? Well, you've got to do the certain things that we say that you do, and then you get the visions and revelations. Now, G.K. Beale, who I've already mentioned today, he does tremendous historical work in his commentary here to argue that what's likely going on is a sort of belief that these visions and revelations are the means by which a person is caught up into a sort of heavenly temple worship. So, so there were sects within Judaism that we know of that were in the areas around Colossae 
that were known to have mixed aspects of pagan worship with their Judaism, and that resulted in a sort of Jewish mysticism. Now, you have to remember that Jews in Colossae were a long way away from the temple in Jerusalem. And so some of those Jews, because they were so far away, began to emphasize that you don't need to go to the physical temple because if you do the things that we say, you can be caught up into this heavenly worship experience that it's like a heavenly temple, and that's just as good, if not better. So the idea from these false teachers was that a person could enter into the heavenly temple through a visionary experience. And they were claiming, friends, that not having these experiences meant that you were a sort of second-class Christian. So Paul wants the true Christians to see right through this. Okay, he, he's been emphasizing throughout Colossians that Jesus himself is the true temple. The temple in Jerusalem is not needed anymore. Being caught up into these heavenly visions of a temple is not needed. Because Jesus is the true temple. And all who are located in him through faith are located within the holy tabernacling presence of God already. So Paul's saying there's nothing outside of Jesus that a person needs to know the joyful, holy presence of God. You only need Jesus. Okay, this emphasis on religious experience through ascetic practices and angelic visitations is not from God. That's what Paul is saying, because it doesn't lead a person to depend on Christ alone, but instead to be puffed up with pride, claiming some superior spirituality. Oh, you say Jesus alone. Well, that's because you haven't had the angelic visitations that I've had. Then you would know that Jesus isn't all you need. You need works too. You need, you need revelations and visions and experiences. That's how you really know what's true and what's not true. And what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all you need is Jesus. The false teachers formed a religion that really was holding fast not to Christ, but to sensational experience. They didn't want to hold fast to God's word, the unchanging standard of his truth, what Paul's going to later go on to even refer to at the end of chapter 3 as the word of Christ. All you need is God's word, which tells us about Jesus, so that we can cling to Jesus, and Jesus alone is our only hope of salvation. And instead, these false teachers are saying, no, 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 get, get in with the exciting stuff. Get in with the experiential, feel-good sensationalism. And, and I just want you to trust me when I say this, church. This stuff is everywhere, okay? This sort of religion is about just feeling good and doing good. This stuff is everywhere. The Bible never discredits the reality that a person can have a feel-good spiritual experience apart from the true Christ. Did you hear what I just said? The Bible never says... That every spiritual experience you have apart from Christ is going to feel really bad, so you'll know that it's not from Christ. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible recognizes that in a demonic world filled with darkness, filled with people who are bent against the truth of the word of God, in this sort of a spiritual world, you can have all sorts of spiritual experiences that feel really good, that seem really bright and light and true, but are actually lies from Satan that are spawning from the pit of hell. And so as Christians, 
We don't have to say that religious experience apart from truth is fake. But we do have to say that religious experience apart from being tethered to the truth of the word of God is almost always guaranteed to be false. I recently watched a video of a man who lives up in Salt Lake City, and he's actually gained a pretty large following because he's declared himself to be a prophet of God. And uh, the entire video is him actually talking with an evangelical Christian, so-called anyways, that's from more of a charismatic bent, who just seems so fascinated and caught up with all this stuff and was celebrating it along with him. But the entire video is this guy who claims to be a prophet validating his prophetic office by going into great detail about these sorts of heavenly visionary experiences that he has where he sees angels, he gets caught up with them, and he participates in a sort of heavenly council among other gods and leaders of the faith up in the heavens. I'll say his name because we're supposed to call out false prophets. His name is Dennis Snuffer. And he just goes on about all these amazing experiences that he has. And this guy doesn't seem like he's lying, friends. I'm just telling you, he seems like he's telling the truth. He seems like he's being really honest about true visual sort of experiences that he's having. And he, he's very articulate, very well-spoken, very successful. He's a powerful lawyer up in Salt Lake City. And he is gaining a massive following of people who are running after him because his story of all these angelic visitations is so convincing. Now, perhaps he is lying, friends. But I hope you know that we don't have to make that argument from a biblical perspective. Because he very well may be having real, visual, revelatory experiences. But our text this morning clearly shows us that such experiences are most often not from God. Why? Because God doesn't want his people holding fast to feelings and visions and revelations. Do you know what God wants his people holding fast to? He says it right there in the text. Holding fast to the head. Look at what he says in verse 19. False teachers and those who follow them are, Paul says, not holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So here's the point. Our Christian lives are to be founded upon Christ who is the head. And we draw all of our spiritual life and vitality, not from personal experiences primarily, but from Christ and his word. You see that? The, the, the point is that the Christian life is all about basking in who Jesus is and in what he has accomplished for us. So we mustn't ever make Christianity primarily about personal feelings and experiences. Christianity is about holding fast to Christ. And as we do, we grow with a growth that comes from God. So let me just connect the significance of this to us here. We need to know that the truth of who Christ is and what he has done is true whether or not we feel good about it and whether or not we have experiences that we think authenticated. Truth is truth. Christ is Christ. God is God. And it doesn't matter whether or not we've had some sort of experience that we think can authenticate that truth in some internal way that makes us feel good about it. 
Christ is Christ because he's Christ. He is true. And Paul is trying to get that into our heads so that we can hold fast to him who is the head. He is our life. He is our all. We know all that we know, not because we've had some personal internal revelation, but because he came down from heaven. He came down and became flesh. He lived amongst the true apostles. He showed them and told them who he is. He died for sins. He resurrected from the dead. He walked out of a real grave over 2,000 years ago, and he ascended into heaven in the visible sight of real eyewitnesses and apostles. And the apostles tell us who he is so that we can hold fast to who he is as he has revealed himself and not as we want him to be. And that is so important to understand. Jesus isn't who he is because you like him a certain way. Jesus is who he is because he has told us who he is in here. And so the command is to hold fast to him and to not be duped by anyone to do otherwise. And we need to hear this because the tendency of man has always been and continues to be to run after sensational experiences and good feelings and to use religion as a mechanism of puffing ourselves up. But what Paul is saying is we shouldn't do that. We should run after Christ. We should aim to know him and to grow in him, to love him, to commune in his word, to know the Bible, to see how he's revealed himself to us so that we can know him not from our own ideas of him, but from the objective revelation that he has given to us in the word. So listen, true Christianity is not grown in a self-centered focus on personal experience. It is grown when it is rooted in the true Christ and in his word. Which means that if you want solid ground in your life to stand on, as we've said and seen again and again in Colossians, what you need to do is you need to draw near to Christ. You need to meditate on who he is by studying and knowing your Bible. You need to do regular routine things of the Christian life, like getting together with other Christians who are going to tell you about Jesus so that Jesus stays abundantly evident in your heart through his objective word. You need to be with God's people. You need to be praying to him, seeking the things that are above and not the things that are of this earth. That is the essence of the true Christian life. Okay, it isn't a feel-good, experience-centered life. It is truly a Christ-centered life. That's true Christianity. Now, there's going to be another thing that you're going to be tempted to trust, and it's really almost like a summary of these other two things we've already covered. But the third and final point here is trusting false idols. Trusting false idols. Look with me at Colossians 2, 20 to 23. Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. He says, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay. Here, Paul's wrapping up his argument against these false teachers by exposing what is truly going on. And he's saying that these false teachers are teaching nothing more 
than a self-made religion. Okay, that language unmistakably calls false religion idolatry. That's the Old Testament sort of imagery that any Jew would have in mind. This is really worship of the self at the core. The false religion of these false teachers is a self-centered religion. That's what idolatry is, friends. Idolatry is when we craft our own gods and, and we make them in the image that we want them to be because that allows us to indulge ourselves. I'm going to make God be what I want him to be because I really want to be the one making the decisions here. That's what idolatry is. It's like, I've got my freedom. I've got my agency. And God can only be what I want him to be. So Paul says that to worldly people, this sort of religion has the appearance of wisdom. I mean, surely it's good to fast in a way that does severity to the body. Surely that's good, right? I mean, that shows how a person is able to have mastery over his own impulses. Isn't that what religion is all about? Becoming a better person? Being able to have some sort of mastery over yourself? Sure, it looks like that outwardly is what Paul is saying. But, but Paul says that such religion has no value when it comes to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Religion that's built on rules and experiences is an empty shell. That's Paul's point to it. There's no substance in it. It's just chasing after shadows. It really has no power ultimately to deal with the deepest problem that's in man. And that problem is the flesh. It has no power to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Do y'all know what the flesh is in Paul's mind? When Paul says the flesh, what he has in mind is the ego. The flesh really is a sort of understanding of the self. The flesh in Paul's mind is that self-centered, self-seeking, self-worshipping, self-indulging natural state that all humanity finds themselves in apart from Christ. And so Paul says that all of that religion may look good on the outside, but it's really just an indulgence of self on the inside. It's really just idolatry. He says clearly right there, it is self Made, self-made. I mean, boy, is the Bible just incredibly perceptive to the human condition, friends. This is especially obvious in our postmodern pluralistic age, is it not? Okay, when I was a kid, my favorite restaurant was this pizza place that was called Mr. Gaddy's. And what I loved about Mr. Gaddy's was that it wasn't just your ordinary pizza buffet. This was a huge pizza buffet. I mean, you had like 20 to 30 different pizza options that you got to choose from, but that wasn't all. They also had this place right next to where all the pizzas were where you could go up to the counter and if you didn't see exactly what you wanted, you could tell them, this is exactly what I want you to make and they would make you whatever pizza you wanted. I mean, you had endless options. There was total freedom. I had all my agency in the world to get whatever kind of pizza I could possibly want. If I could dream it, I could get it. And that was the joy that I wanted to receive as a little kid. So I loved that pizza place. And the way that I treated that pizza joint 
is the same way that every person in the world is inclined to treat religion. That's why you end up with a folk religion like what you had in Colossae. Because humans want syncretism naturally. Humans want to be able to mix and match and make whatever concoction they think works for them religiously. I just want to have the agency to choose, the freedom to make God be whatever I want him to be. That, friends, is a symptom of our fallen state. That's what Paul calls indulgence of the flesh. But that is not the nature of true Christianity. Okay, true Christianity fully and completely identifies with Christ as the one true God and as the only hope of salvation for man. So, so as Paul puts it in these last verses, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, he tells these Christians, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? You see what his point is here? His point is that the Christian has died to that old self way of living where we try to control our own destiny through whatever set of regulations we think will work best for us. We're no longer, Paul says, controlled by the demonic spirits and the norms of the fallen cosmos. In fact, we die to all that stuff. We don't need to make our own religion anymore because we have been made alive in the true Christ. And so our religion, Paul tried to labor to show us, must always be grounded in that truth. It's Jesus or it's nothing. And not only is it Jesus or nothing, it's Jesus as he has revealed himself and not as we want to concoct him to be. It's him as he is, or it's nothing. He's the only hope of salvation. And church, we need this reminder today. Because a life that's built on selfishness is a life that is poised to crumble. But a life that is built on Christ and Christ alone, trusting him, seeking him, Knowing him, that's a life. Worshiping, that's a life that will grow and flourish. Do you want your marriage to flourish? Then press into Jesus together. Study him together. Know him together. Submit to his word together. And guess what? In him, Christian marriage can become one of the most glorious pictures of Christ in the church that we have in the world. Do you want your home to be blessed? then fill it with the worship of Christ. Be, be a home where you can't dwell in that space without hearing the gospel every day. Be a home where Christ is sung about, where he's read about, where he is revered and honored and worshiped. Do you want our church to grow, friends? I sure do. I want our church to grow. Then we got to keep preaching Christ. We have to keep gathering together to know Christ and to move on mission into the world to make him fully known. If we have been truly raised with Christ, then why would we go back living for the dead things of the world? Hey, listen, church. I know that there can be true hindrances to gathering with the people of God on a regular basis. In fact, I think that Paul is even aware of that. And that's why he's talking about the regulation of the Sabbath. And we can get into that conversation later if you want to get into that conversation with me. I'd be happy to have it. We don't have time to get into it now. But I know that there can be real reasons why there can be temporary hindrances to gathering with the people of God on a regular basis. But 
the truth that we need God's people in our lives is an eternal truth of the word of God that we simply cannot neglect. And so no matter what the hindrances may be, we've got to find ways to overcome those hindrances so that we can be in one another's lives, preaching and proclaiming the gospel to each other, doing Christian community. And this is going to be all the more important in a world that does not want to honor the things of God, but wants to tell you that you should indulge in the self. Because the world is going to tell you that the important things are the things that enhance your own performance in the business world. Or the important things are the things that enhance your own child's performance in the world. They're going to tell you you need things other than Jesus. But we come together as a church to remind each other, no, 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 we just need Jesus. And we better keep holding fast to the head together. Okay, all of the language that's used in this text is plural, meaning that Paul is talking to a church. Hold fast to the head together. Gather together. Follow Jesus. Live in deep self-sacrificial community. Know your brothers and sisters in Christ. Gather with them. Encourage them. Admonish them. Rebuke them. Love them. Care for them. Be a community of Christians who's really going to be the community and assembly of Yahweh that the world needs to see so that they can know who God truly is. And so if we want to grow as a church, we can't allow ourselves to live outside of that truth because the world will always, in a myriad of ways, I could apply this in about 30 different directions right now, but the world will always tell us to live under its illusory truth effect. Live for the lie because it's more comfortable there. Live for the lie because it feels better. Live for the lie because it's easier than counting all that you have as loss that you might gain Jesus. Just live in the lie. But what we have to remember is that as God's people, no matter how many times that Satan tells us the lies of this world, we know the truth. And the fact is that our life is hidden in Christ with God. And no one can ever take that away. So let's hold fast to it together. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for the truth of your word because it tells us about Jesus. Um, we thank you that your word is living and active. And God, I pray that your word would continue to do its work even as it's been preached and proclaimed right now. I pray, oh God, that you would penetrate hearts by the power of your spirit as your gospel has been preached. Would you minister to the heart's of your saints this morning to hold fast to the head, to hold fast to you, O oh Jesus, as our only hope, as our all-sufficient sacrifice. We don't want to be legalists. We don't want to be people who are tossed to and fro because we're chasing after whatever experience feels good to us at any given point in time. We want to be rooted and established in the faith. So I pray that Christ would just be big to us this morning, that we would worship him as he has revealed himself to us. Thank you for being a God who shows us who you are so that we don't have to be in the dark relying on ourselves to ultimately determine you. But you are the God who determines all. So I pray that we would trust in that. Trust you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move now into a time of the Lord's Supper. And this is a meal.